Welcome to In The Isles, the movie and TV podcast that will gobble up all the new content like a giant space worm in the desert. I'm James. I'm Dan. This week we're going to talk about what we've been watching. Got some real news and our main review at last is Dune, the long anticipated sci-fi epic that is guaranteed to be the best film ever made. Really, really... um... Appreciated your diction there as well with Dune. You can compensate for me saying it in my northern accent, which will literally be June. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't like the way the the, uh, the Americans say Dune. No, it's not D double O N, is it? Yeah, they say Dune. Still, though, we have nothing against them, do we? No, we don't. We don't. Anyway, how are you? I had an extremely disturbing experience. Well, I'll ask your question first. Do you believe that? Digital marketing is tracking our thoughts and serving us ads based on our thoughts. Our thoughts? Maybe not our thoughts, but I believe that they're always listening because I've had experience of that recently. But go on, tell me. Right, so I was on the tram and I saw a guy watching a video on his phone and it was Viggo Mortensen giving some kind of speech and having a discussion on on a stage. And I thought, I really want to ask him what that is because Viggo Mortensen's an interesting man. But I had no idea what it was. Next day, I'm on YouTube, and YouTube, out of nowhere, recommends me the very same video that that guy was watching. Now, I'm not a regular Viggo Mortensen video watcher on YouTube. That video was just slotted there in amongst Norm MacDonald videos and wrestling videos, and it was the exact same video. It's Albert Camus's The Human Crisis, read by Viggo Mortensen 70 years later. It's a five-year-old video. So I am convinced that YouTube or Google read my mind or was recording what my eyes were seeing and then recommended that video to me. Is it not just that it's trending currently? I know it's five years old, but it is entirely possible that there's something that's brought it back to the forefront. I'm going to be honest, this has disappointed me. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your your explanation makes complete sense, but I, I was disturbed. Okay. It still could be possible, and maybe I shouldn't be as blasé about saying, come on, it's not that, because if they are watching and listening to our thoughts, then that's a very disturbing thing. Yeah, or, so, or, or recording what's in our eyeballs. Scary times we live in, eh? Daniel, what have you been watching this week on various streaming platforms? I'm going to play a little game with you. I don't know why, it's, it's probably going to backfire like everything we attempt. What do you think I've been watching, James, given what's been out in the last week? What do you think's caught my interest? Uh, a documentary on Netflix about a murderer being released, or it's a long shot, but the the the, the documentary about the German cult that goes to Chile. Right, those are my, guess, those are my guesses. But I'm you, murder crime. I'd be surprised if you did not have murder crime on your watch list. Saying unpredictable, fair enough. Wounded. Um, you're halfway there. I thought you'd get it. it it's you on Netflix. And I can finally say, I don't think I reviewed season two on here because that was ages ago. It's something that I've read the book. I've read the book about this. So I'm informed. All right, I listened to the book, whatever. And I loved it. And as soon as I heard they were adapting it for TV, I was I was very excited. I don't know if you remember, because I don't believe you've seen you, have you? 
I have, actually, I have. But the end of season um, two, we looked at each other and said, I don't think I can go through this again. I do remember this now. Yeah, okay. Fair point. I, and I'll come on to that. But for anyone who doesn't know or remember, this was actually a Lifetime series many years ago. Family-friendly Lifetime Network. And I always thought, what, what an odd fit. And if anybody did experience that, they actually bleeped out the swearing, which was a bit jarring. And it did feel like it had stabilizers on the whole time. It didn't feel like they'd fully committed to that dark tone. But then Netflix picked it up and then, you know, go off, do what you want. And that is what they did. So if you don't know what the setup is, it's about a charming young man named Joe Goldberg, who's a bit of a book lover. Oh, and he also just so happens to be a murderous stalker. So many people refer to this as a poor man's Dexter. I don't agree with that. I think it is its own thing, but I I can understand the comparison. I think I I just like that you have a protagonist who is essentially a sexually deviant killer. You know, he's he's not offing people who are bad always. It's mainly defenceless women that he targets. And yet somehow we're still supposed to root for him. And you don't see a lot of shows like that. So that's why I liked it. I liked the first two seasons, and I know you alluded to it there. A lot of people complained about season two. They felt it went a bit too far and jumped the shark. But I actually had a bit of fun with it embracing the ridiculousness of it. So season three, it's here. And I thought, yep, yeah, I'm geared up for this. And this time around, we've got a very different Joe Goldberg. He's married. He has a child. He's trying to settle down into suburban life. But old habits die hard, and it's only a matter of time before dark impulses take over and things predictably start to go downhill. I don't want to reveal too much about what happened in season two in case people haven't seen it, but I'll just say his wife has her own problems. You know what I'm talking about because you've seen it. And between the two of them, it is literally a, a recipe for disaster. So despite him now being locked down under the thumb, whatever you want to call it, the relationship between the two of them is a very complex one and it provides a lot of opportunities for them to keep things thrilling, which it does. I've not finished it yet. I'm about six episodes in. I was loving the first few episodes and I thought they did a really good job of setting up the stall and, you know, it's in a different location. There's different relationship dynamics at play. And again, I'm trying to remain spoiler-free, but now six episodes in, I am starting to get a feeling of deja vu. It's them making terrible choices and cleaning up the mistakes again and again and again. And it was fun to begin with, but it's starting to get a little tiresome. I think I've just arrived at where you got to with season two just a bit later. Obviously, I've still got four episodes to go and it has had good reviews. So I'm just hoping there's a few tricks left up the sleeves so that they end on a strong note. Because I like these characters and it's a premise that's basically catnip to me, isn't it? So I'd love to see more seasons. But I'm I'm on the fence right now and I'll give a final verdict next week, probably. I'm looking forward to hearing your final verdict. I see that it is number one on Netflix, but in the end of season two, they, they did tease that he will f- become interested in someone else. and. I just thought, I thought I can't, I can't go through it. No, I can't go through it because it's too disturbing, but I can't just watch the same story play out for a third time. Understandable. It's not going to be for everyone, but uh, I'm willing to see it through. What else have you been watching? Ladhood. I only found out about this through a Lad Bible post on Facebook, which said something about an honest conversation about dogging. It said dogging. I clicked it. I don't go on Facebook much, so I can only imagine it was fate that I discovered this. And it's a BBC Three comedy that came out way back in 2019, but a second series has only just heard, so I'm going to say it's still current. We're at the forefront. It is current. 
It's a semi-autobiographical show from comedian Liam Williams, who I was not familiar with before watching this. And I'm led to believe it started off as a Radio 4 comedy show before they greenlit it for TV. What it's about, it's about him coming to terms with his flaws as an adult, but recognising that a lot of his issues stem from his childhood. So each episode you get these parallel stories play out, one in which Liam is in the present day, experiencing more often than not awkward social situation, and the other is him in his youth, mocking about with his mates with a story that sort of holds up a mirror to his actions in the present. Does that make sense? Yes. Good. Good. Going to cut to the chase. I absolutely love this show. It might be one of the best things I've seen this year. It's very reminiscent of things like The Inbetweeners and was it Young Offenders that you recommended quite a while ago? Yes, it is. Yeah, Young Offenders. But I would say it's maybe a bit less slapsticky and more grounded in reality than that. Nearly every single thing that happens in this show has happened to me at some point. I can't say the same of things like in between us because that was just a bit more exaggerated. From it is a while since I've seen it. To be fair, Liam Williams is the master of niche references to the early two thousands to such an extent that at points I thought this this has been tailor made for me. This program only I will get this joke. And now giving you an example of it, clearly it's not. But there's um. There's two bullies in this called Tinhead and Rupert, and they cost this group of lads. And they're like, what are you doing tonight, lads? And they're like, oh, we're, we're, we're just going around uh, Ralph's house and, and watching Saw on DVD. And then the thicker sounding of the two is like, is that a Region 1 or Region 2 DVD? It's like Region 1. He went, well, you're bullshitting because Region 1's not out until uh, another two months or something. That in itself, me reciting it, is not funny, but I just thought discussing regions of DVDs I'm sure that wasn't a conversation that everyone had. And there's even mentioned in this, if you remember the Neil Strauss book, The Game, which was about pickup artist tips for picking up women. Yes, yeah. Which is extremely problematic in this mm-hmm. day and age. There's reference to that. And I was like, I remember people banging on about this so much. It just seemed quite niche. And I'm sure it wasn't because we all lived through it. But there's, there's just so many examples in this show. It is so good. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of things that don't match up with my childhood. A big one being that these lads are essentially a group of tracky-wearing chavs, and that was not me. But the observational comedy is just so on point in this. What makes it a bit unique is that Liam Williams, the comedian who writes it, he's in this. He adds narration to scenes from his youth by being present on screen as a sort of ghost of Christmas past, if you will. And he's commenting on little bits like he's having a fight with his mate and then he'll just interrupt the scene and be like, what you're about to see, I'm not proud of this. And it's it's just so funny. But at the same time, it is painful to watch at times. You you really feel sad for him because you it feels like a form of therapy, I think, some of the writing in this. And I, I'm not going to lie, there's overly stuffed dialogue, which is a bit pretentious at times. But largely, this is just a complete success to me. I think it is brilliant. I will check this out. So the second season has just come out. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Okay. Sold, you've got yourself a sale for Ladhood. If you watch it and don't like it, fair enough, but I'll not be listening to anything you recommend again. Well, it, so- it sounds like Pen15, which was also yes. early 2000s nostalgia. It will scratch that itch. But anyway, enough about me. What have you been watching this week? Something that is new to the UK, but was released in February in the US of America. Young Rock. 
which is the story of Dwayne Johnson running for president of the United States of A in 2032. And through a series of interviews, he talks about his past, talks about his childhood, his, his early childhood in the early 80s with his father, wrestler Rocky Johnson, when he was a high schooler with a full mustache and everyone thought he was a narc to his time as a, a college a college footballer. It kind of follows a non-linear structure. I think each episode is more about a theme. So you get to see a little bit of when he's young, a little bit of when he's high school and college. It all mixes it together. It isn't like he becomes older and older each episode. As a contrast to a lot of other content that is out in the world, this is such a wholesome, well-intentioned thing that I, I felt really positive coming out of it. So Dwayne Johnson is an executive producer on it, and it feels like he has made a program that is all about the values that he has. Because each episode, there is someone, usually his father, Rocky Johnson, just saying, family's the most important thing. You've got to have integrity and honesty. There's always these moral lessons coming out, and you feel like it is Dwayne The Rock Johnson trying to put something positive out into the world. And it is a comedy and it is very funny. There's some cracking one-liners in it. Randall Park, who I recognised most recently from WandaVision, he's the playing himself and he's a television news person who does the interviews with The Rock and he's a kind of bumbling fool. Like Dwayne Johnson is super confident and Randall Park will say, oh yeah, well, I'm always on for counting my chickens. Long pause. No, really, I count chickens. I've got four. He just keeps saying stupid things all the time. And you have a lot of Older wrestlers popping up as well, like Match Run, Randy Savage, Andre the Giant, Iron Sheik, and they're all in there being all over the top. But it's all just very happy and wholesome, very clean, and I'm really enjoying it. And I don't want to take the positive sting out of it, but does it come across as an honest sort of autobiographical? Is it autobiographical or is it just like a rose-tinted view of his childhood? I don't know how autobiographical it is exactly. I know enough about The Rock's young life to know that a lot of it is true. So obviously right. his father was a wrestler. He was living in Hawaii. He was massive when he was in high school and all the stuff about him going to playing college football, wherever he played college football. All that is true. I feel like maybe the, the core facts are true, but maybe everything in the, the scene to scene dialogue is all made up possibly. But Which there's nothing sense, wrong with that. But you do sense that in the scenes with his family or with the significant moments where his father passes on this knowledge. Maybe that really did happen. Maybe he does have these memories of this is what was said to me and that finds its way in the story. But none of it is yeah. written by him. He's just an executive producer. Interesting. What can you find that on? You can find it on Now TV in the UK. Okay. Young Rock, very good. What else have you been watching? I didn't want to watch a piece of content just for the sake of it, for this podcast. And I wanted to do something. We've not done before a mid-season review of Foundation on Apple TV, which is linked into Dune, sci-fi epic. You might recall when I first talked about Dune, it was the first two episodes. They were doing a lot of heavy lifting. It didn't live up to my personal hype. The reviews were middling, so now we're five episodes in at time of recording, halfway through. And after all that heavy lifting, you sense that there's been a big exhale of breath and they're saying this is the story after we've set everything up this is the story so please enjoy it and i am enjoying it a lot more i'm sure it has no relation at all to the novels but it settles into the three clone emperors trying to stay in control as things collapse through a series of big events as predicted and over on foundation which is this remote planet they're trying to build the foundation 
build up knowledge and the research while invading forces come in and there's a little bit of action. In the first two episodes, I said, oh, the budget's massive. It's basically the same as the film. It's not anymore. It's it's dropped off. So it looks more like The Mandalorian where you have characters in costume standing in a massive barren landscape that they found somewhere. They've put one futuristic looking object in the middle of the field and that's it. So it, and that's that's most of what the fifth episode is. So start big, hook you in with the visuals, and then just, just make pay for it by not giving you that reward again for the rest of the season. Yeah, just people running around in futuristic body armor in a in a desert. But I am enjoying it more now that that heavy lifting of the start is complete. It's still not the greatest series that's ever been made. There are flashes of something more complex, like politically, that might be going on. And there are times where it reminds me of Legend of the Galactic Heroes, which is one of the best animes ever made that is about a interplanetary conflict between an empire and a democracy. And it's it's a clash of values across the stars. And I think that's what I wanted Foundation to be. It's still not quite that. But if you do have the Apple TV subscription and you like sci-fi, I would still say it's worth watching. Okay. How many episodes is this season, by the way? Ten. Okay, so is literally the midway point. I'm guessing you're of a similar mindset to me with you, hoping that they turn it round and finish strong. A, a, a more fitting car metaphor for me is that they're in, they're, they are in the right direction. They just need to get it into a higher gear. Speaking of vehicles, shall we segue into real news? It's the real thing. It is now real, real news, news. Did you see the news that Squid Game has become a all-time record-breaking series for Netflix? It's something like the biggest opening ever for a Netflix show. And you know what? We were there first, if you remember. I said that I watched it on that first weekend that it came out. I spotted it on the upcoming releases and now look what's happened. It's the biggest show ever. We, we're setting the agenda for worldwide streaming. No, you're right. We are. And I'm very proud. Not of myself, because I can't really say that I had any any impact there. It was all it was all you, James. But nice to see you recommended it before it became the, the cold player of the streaming world. I'm not sure that's a compliment. It's not. Have I given you my thoughts on Squid Game? No. I'm not a huge fan. I think it's good. I think it is good, but I do not think it is what everyone is building it up to be. There's far too much hype, and I think maybe that is what's affected it. Maybe that's not against the show itself, but I just watched it and went, yeah, it's good, but I've seen plenty of other Korean content that is either on par or better than this. I don't get why this is the one thing that has captured everyone's attention. That's my thoughts, but only four episodes in, so there you go. That's fair. What else is in the news? The news. It's becoming a bit of a habit, this. Last week, we revealed that there were some early reactions to Ghostbusters Afterlife, because, you know, we're we're not building up hype. We're more managing your expectations. And unfortunately, we're not really setting you up to get excited about the Eternals because early reviews are in and it's somewhat mixed, very mixed. So the Eternals, for anyone who doesn't remember, where where have you been tied in, eh? What's up with you? It's the latest Marvel film, which is due in November. And it's directed by James's most favourite director in the entire world, who Helm Nomadland. 
last year, uh, Chloe Zhao. Or was it this year? I don't matter. Anyway, do you want to hear what people are saying? James? I'd love to. I'd love to hear what people have to say in these early reactions. Okay. First off, we've got IndieWire's review where David Ehrlich has wrote, Eternals in style and tone. This is easily the least Marvel-like movie in the MCU. It doesn't look like plastic. Also, sex happens. And the scale is cosmic in a way that makes the Avengers arc feel like a blip. So why is this still just misfit spandex people fighting bad CG for three hours? That took a turn at the end, didn't it? It did, it did. Got another one from Next Best Picture. Don't really know how much weight to... You know, hold behind their opinion. Never heard of them before. But they say, aside from a few dazzling moments and a wonderfully diverse cast, Eternals disappointed me. The story is an expository, convoluted mess as it jumps through time and multiple constants with an uneven tone. It's not sounding good. It's not, is it? And you just know that if this is already being classed as the least Marvel-like movie in the MCU, that's going to get people's backs up. It's already going to have a few haters, I think, on that basis alone. Yeah, I would submit that being the least Marvel film of the MCU isn't necessarily a bad thing because the formula is established now, so maybe we could have something to shake up. Are there any more re- reactions? Because I found another article with someone that I can give you. Yeah, go on. Shoot. I'll, I'll just give you the, the ne- most negative one, just so it fits like our, our agenda that we're pushing, that this film isn't going to be good. So Peter Scaretta says that Eternals is surprising, epic, beautiful, yet dense. It takes some big swings, sometimes feels like a DC film, not a criticism. Other times feels like no superhero movie ever. I wish I had a glowing quick reaction to offer you, but I'm left with more complex thoughts, which I think is another way of saying, didn't like it, but I just don't know how to express it just yet. The premiere was but yesterday, wasn't it? So I think it's fair. He's still letting it digest. Well, there you have it. There, There is actually the opposite opinion to offer on this as well. But like James said, we're pushing an agenda. It's going to be awful, so we'll stick with that. Yeah, yeah. From one failure to another, why The Last Man has been cancelled. You've only just started watching that, haven't you? I've not even watched it. Where have I got that from then? I think I've been saying for the past month, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to talk about, uh, it. Talk about it next week, but never did. Aren't you glad you save your time now? I'm glad I saved my time, yes. Why the last man has been cancelled? Why? That's the word, yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit complicated. I'm not going to get into it. There's an article in The Hollywood Reporter about it which says that the cancellation decision was, per sources, not based on viewership figures, as Hulu, like other streamers, does not release traditional ratings data. So I think there is a maybe a narrative being bandied about that this is a a woke failure, go woke, go broke kind of thing. But that seems like it's not the case. It seems like it's a pretty complicated situation with FX, who are the studio that make it, not wanting to pay more money to extend options on the cast. I don't know what that means. It sounds like they're not extending contracts on the cast. And there's a lot of complicated financial things going on. And the people involved in in making it the producers they're trying to get a second season done and sources again sources say that hbo max is the most likely place where it might go next so the common man version of it here on in the isles podcast is it's a bit complicated don't really get it it's not a, a viewership failure it's not a critical failure 
it sounds like it's insider business contract stuff that's made someone say, oh, just leave it, just leave it. I doubt the response to it has not played into it somehow because it has been a bit fair to middling, hasn't it? It's not been a resounding success, this. You know, maybe it's just spin, just overly convoluted spin that they've put on it so that people don't just go, oh, it's crap, I'll not watch it. Yeah, good point. That Yeah, I think you, you could be right because I've never seen what the main character looks like and he's pictured at the top of this article and he looks like a right wet wipe. Just one look at him, I think I don't want to watch a programme about this man. A lot of the uh, response that I've heard is, is about his character as well and it being a bit one-dimensional and not very interesting to you know spend time with so your first glance review of him it would seem uh, extends the show itself and his performance so uh why the last man because we said so from one floppy-haired protagonist to another let's do our main review of june hello i'd like to order an opinion please this film is new fresh point of view Hold me sit back this is a fact in the aisles, here are some aisles, thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. This week's main review is Dune, part one. With the future of House Atreides. You have to be ready. There is no call we do not answer, there is no faith that we betray. They're not human, they're brutal. If I'm not dead, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. Come on! My son. Dune is set in the far future in a time where a drug called spice is the key to all human success. A ridiculous idea. We all know the key to success is a well-connected family and an internship at a big law firm after you graduate from university. It's the story of a young boy so upset with the casting of Zendaya in Spider-Man, he travels across the galaxy to tell her to her face, you are not Mary Jane and you never will be. It's actually about, well, it's a feature adaptation of the Frank Herbert science fiction novel that is about the son of a noble family entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy. Bit vague. Daniel, what did you think of Dune? Disclaimer, I haven't seen the original Dune or read the Frank Herbert novel, so I didn't have that baggage going in from that perspective. Denis Villeneuve. I, d- I don't know if I'd say that. I think, I think I've nailed it, though. The director, he, he's a bit hit and miss for me. I loved Prisoners. Bloody loved it. I admired the ambition of Blade Runner, the sequel, 2049, but I can't say I ever wanted to go back and rewatch it on like the original film, which is an indisputable classic. I also, and I know this is a really unpopular opinion, I hated Arrival, the Amy Adams film. I hated it. So just putting that out there. Despite all that, I, I was still very excited for this. And that's mainly because it's it's quite a rarity, I think. It's a it's an entry point to a new epic saga or a potentially epic saga. And, and the chance of being part of that moment culturally it doesn't happen all the time um so i was hoping i hope this pays off and plus i I can get involved with it so it's not like star wars for example when i've got 10 films that i need to be fully up to speed with and i like sci-fi i wouldn't say it's my go-to genre it's probably yours but i do always like it when it's done well so enough waffle i probably will continue to waffle 
I will say right off the bat, I enjoyed this film. I think it delivers in many, many ways. But my thoughts on it are not the resounding. It's a masterpiece, which seems to be the consensus at the moment. It's already made its way into the IMDb top 150 films of all time. And I just think it's ridiculous that it's too early for it to reach that sort of status. But hey, that's that's just me. The big plus point, and it is a big one, is the world building in this film for me, especially from a visual point of view. It is exquisite, I dare say. It feels like a very full, realised world from the costumes, the set design, the vehicles even, or spaceships, for lack of a better word. They don't look like your stereotypical, you know, modern, sleek, rounded edges that you find in a lot of sci-fis. It's much more of a industrial, rough-around-the-edges sort of design, and I thought that worked really well and it was in keeping with the world that they inhabited. The cinematography elevates a lot of that because it is astounding. It has a very distinct style. But that being said, and I have mentioned this before, I don't like films that are largely set in a desert and they have a sort of muted colour palette. So the fact that it sort of retains that style throughout, it did ever so slightly get to me. But that's a personal preference. I can't deny it's consistent and it's well shot. Uh, it definitely has an identity. I cannot take that away from it. In terms of a cinema experience, it does deliver the scale of it. You know, it feels vast and wide. And they did put enough scenes of countless people lined up alongside each other for me to think, yes, this is a huge scale film. The music only complements that too. It, it feels as epic as the imagery that's in front of you. As for the story itself, it did remind me a lot of what you've literally just said this episode and in a previous one about the Foundation. I think there's a lot of heavy lifting that they have to do to set up part one of this universe, and and there is a lot going on, and I'm not too sure if all of that came across cleanly for me. There is enough to latch on to, and there's some intriguing developments with Timothy Chalamet's character, Paul, in that rather than him just having one destiny. He may, in fact, have two, which I can't say I've seen before. I just don't know if they explained all of these things in the most straightforward manner. But at the same time, I understand that they are juggling with quite a lot. One thing, that, again, that I'll say as another criticism, I don't think the action is particularly breathtaking. It's just kind of the... And I don't recall anything being that memorable from an action point of view. A big problem as well is that this is a long film that is constantly building and building up to something big, but it's not actually building up to the ending. It's building up to the next film that we're either not going to see for three years or we may never, ever see, ever. So that was a bit frustrating, but I I can understand why we're in this position, but I couldn't help feel as though it was a bit anticlimactic. So to summarise, I did enjoy it. I was never bored. It is a film to be marvelled at. And I would say it's worth going to the cinema for. But perfect, it is not. James, what about you? In a way, this is the next chapter in Denis Villeneuve's run of, to me, very good sci-fi films, as you've already mentioned. Arrival, Blade Runner, and now Dune. I'm not going to build tension. I loved this film. The other Villeneuve sci-fi films that I did like a lot was leading to this moment. Like you, I'm ashamed to say. I don't think maybe you were not ashamed, but I am ashamed. I've not read the book and we say that every week, but the majority of people alive have not read any given book. So for any film based on a book, most people haven't read the book. 
It's just the people who have read the book mention it at every opportunity that they've read the book. But as I understand it, this film is very close to the events of the book and it actually only covers the first half, as you've said. It's a famously difficult text to adapt, but surprisingly, I thought the plot was pretty clear, straightforward. Good guy faction goes to rule the planet. Bad guy faction wants to attack them. The protagonist might be some kind of chosen one, Messiah, maybe. He dreams of a girl. Who is she? Don't know. It'll be revealed later on. Where it gets difficult to follow is the amount of lore and world building in the sense that there's a galaxy and a history and events to understand. But actually, thinking back on it, the film is very long and I think it doesn't throw that much at you. It gives you time to digest the lore as you look at the nice landscapes. And that leads to my next point about the pacing. For me, it was so well paced for a film of this length. I was never bored but that might be because I was in awe for the entire runtime. I loved it. I just liked looking at it. You've talked about the cinematography already. It is amazing how good it looks. It's one of those every shot is a desktop background film. Some might say it drags on, nothing happens, but I was looking at every scene thinking the design of that wall is so good. The architecture of this town really makes sense. And I want to talk about in spoilers how the structure is unusual and how to me that helped with the pacing of this very long film. I wish there was more bloody violence. There is a lot of cutting away and obscuring of executions and murders, a lot of bloodless killing. It did become noticeable. Didn't make the film any worse, but I did notice it. A recent trailer has a quote saying, this is the new Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. For me, it is. It is. If I was 15 now and I watched this, with no background or expectations, just a new film watched on release at the cinema, I would regard this as one of the best pieces of content I've ever seen in my life, and I'd be all over it. I like the action. There was no shaky cam on the action scenes. It gave you a good medium view of what was going on. You got to see the the choreography, the unique fighting style, and everything that was going on, and the positioning of the, the vehicles, the worms in the bigger action scenes. It really laid it out nicely so you could understand what was going on. The cast is perfect. Without exception, nothing more to say with that. If there is one flaw, it's that the general atmosphere of foreboding is so consistent and so effective that it's not fun or enjoyable. So this might be called the next Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, but there is no lighthearted, heroic, uplifting moment. It's really effing cool, but does it have that moment where a rowdy American audience would cheer in the cinema? The moment that you'd watch over and over again on YouTube because it was such an awesome moment that lives on forever with an iconic soundtrack behind it. Don't think it had that moment, but maybe that will come in part two. Those are my thoughts. Your only negative was yet another positive for me. I absolutely loved the atmosphere in this film. I thought it was just all encompassing. I I do feel like the baddie here, I feel like I've purposely set out to slag it off in some respects. And I didn't, I really didn't. Those are just my genuine points, but I did like feel like, wow, I love being in this world. And I love this feeling of foreboding. Like you said, that was one of the plus points for me. But I could understand what you're saying. It's not everyone's cup of tea when you just want a bit of jostling and messing around and whatever else. Yeah, I'd liked that atmosphere, but I just think in terms of a mass appeal, it doesn't have that. It, by design, it doesn't have that, but I just wonder if it might have an impact on the word of mouth on the box office. But I love spending time in the world as well. 
the design of the costumes. You could see it was practical. It made sense. The vehicles, I agree with your points about how there's an industrial practical feel to it. And inside the vehicles, even though this is set in the year 10,000, they still have mechanical switches in in the cockpit. I I completely agree. I was going to make a note, but I couldn't think how to summarize it. But I think it has now come to mind. It was like a, a hybrid of like ancient Egyptian style 70s chic looking thing it was it was a bit weird but how it melded it all together and became its own thing but it it really did work the more that i talk about this film the more that i realized that i did really really enjoy a lot of it something you've just reminded me of even though it may not be relevant is that there are nice physical moments between characters that make them seem more human especially between timothy chalamet and oscar isaac father and son they kind of put their hands on each other's shoulders and hug and oscar isaac arrives late to a meeting and he just gives paul a quick pat on the back as he's walking in which makes sense in the context of like worrying events happened before and there's things that's in the trailer between paul and jason momoa's character where they'll like run run at each other and hug and it's things like that that Dennis Villeneuve has obviously put the effort into making these human relationships look human and be relatable. I couldn't agree more with you on that. It's not something I picked out, but now that you've said it, they were there and there was effort made to humanise these people a bit more. Talking to the actors, just one thing I wanted to mention. I know we're, I know we're going on a bit here before spoilers, but it's it's that good of a film. If you've paid attention to any of the marketing material, and specifically people who have dedicated posters, don't expect them to appear too much in this. I was very surprised by that. Might mention it more in spoilers, but people can just be in it for five minutes and they are portrayed to be quite a big role. Turns out they're not. So just a word of warning, if you went to see anyone in particular, not naming names because we're not in spoilers. Excellent point. Just one last word, Jason Momoa, right? I couldn't help feel, because it was a deserty setting, how much of a better Prince of Persia would he have made than Jake Gyllenhaal? Because when he was running around, I thought, that role was made for you. What a, what a missed opportunity. Sorry, that's irrelevant, but just something that came to mind. No, excellent call. Very good point. Get on the phone to his agent and tell him, we've gone on long enough, and this is only part one of the story. Daniel, would you recommend Dune? Yes. All right. I identified, in my opinion, what were some shortcomings, but this is probably a cinema experience that you are not going to get other than if you watch this film this year. So yes, 100%. What about you? Yes. Let's go into spoilers. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. House Atreides and House Harkonnen. Fight between two noble houses. Harkonnen invades with the help of some really scary people. He wiped out House Atreides. Oscar Isaac, dead. Josh Brolin, assuming he's dead after a bagpipe charge. Paul and his mother, Lady Jessica, Rebecca Ferguson. I love Rebecca Ferguson. They escape into the desert. They finally meet Zendaya. Paul proves himself in one-to-one combat. And that's it. That's the end of the film. So obviously, given your opinions of the film, I doubt you did feel this way, but were you you satisfied or were you disappointed? Well, this is what I was hinting towards before about the structure. So it builds up to a giant action scene with a massive invasion, clashing armies, escape, sacrifice, and there's still 45 minutes left. So when Lady Jessica and Paul were in the desert escaping, I I was already beginning to realise this is part one. It's going to end small and Mm. just end so when that ending came i was already expecting something like that i think i half was 
And like I said before, I, c- I can understand why we ended the way that we did. Not me and you, James. The film. But it, it's that knowing that this could be the end that I thought, on one hand, I'm frustrated because I might never see the next part of this. But on the other, congratulations to you, sir, Mr. Dennis Villeneuve, for having the balls to go, no, I'm going to put it out there and then there will be a something like Restore the Snyderverse movement that will make part two happen. But it worries me with this having in the US a simultaneous streaming release that maybe it might not get the audience it deserves because i do think this is i'm not going to go as far as saying it's niche this film but i don't think it's going to be for everyone i agree i think you've said this to me will people actually want to watch this it's people in leather suits in the desert for a good portion of it and there isn't a lot of action there's action in the trailer that is actually a dream sequence so yeah, I think that is a concern. The number of people that might come out of it going, bit of a flat ending, not a lot of action, boring, didn't really mm. get it. But then it could go the other way, couldn't it? And enough people are intrigued enough to at least watch this one, that they green like the second one, but then no one turns up for that one because it turns out half the people didn't like the first one. But yeah. at least we'll have part two. Yeah, or they, or they made the second one, but it has a much, much smaller budget. <laughs> and it's, it's all set in caves with a very small cast. <laughs> Can I just pick up on the point you said about the plot being straightforward and basic? I don't disagree. I followed it from a basic standpoint, but this is probably me being an idiot. I I reached out to Wikipedia for the plot summary afterwards and found it to only be about two sentences, and I felt no more the wiser after reading it. So I didn't understand the politics or the rivalry between the two factions. I understand what the Duke and his people have arrived in June to do. They're there to cultivate spice, not the thing that you see tweakers smoking around Manchester City Centre, it's something else. But I'm not too clued up on the opposition and why there's such resistance there. I don't know what the motivations are. I don't feel like that was very well explained to me. Because you've got a group of people, the, I'm going to say this wrong, is it the Frenum? On Arrakis, yeah, the desert people. Yeah, they're nothing to do with the big bad guys, are they? That's a completely different thing. No, they're just unfortunate native inhabitants of the planet. I just felt a bit muddled, like I say, from a motivations point of view. Who's got stakes in what? I was feeling like that as well. So just, I'm saying it straightforward. I was, I thought I might be lost at first, but then I had to kind of reassure myself halfway through. It's not as complicated as you think, James. It's fine. You're fine. Yeah. And I think as for the motivations, I think what was going on. Actually, no, I've something else I want to say is you know the um you know the names of the different people and everything that was going on. I was trying to remember who was who. So in my head, the rival houses were called House Heineken and House Astraders. <laughs> They're actually House Harkonnen and House Atreid Atreides. So House Atreides, which is the good guys. Oscar Isaac. I think the idea is that they're becoming too powerful and too influential within the empire. So the emperor sends them to Arrakis to kind of cripple them and put them in a weaker position and then conspires with House Harkonnen to have Harkonnen and some like brutal warriors invade Arrakis and wipe out High House Astraders as they're in their strategically weak position. Are you saying Astraders or Astraders? Ass traders. Oh, okay. Just just wanted to clarify. You know what I'm um, saying? I mean, maybe overcomplicated that, but basically the good guys, they're becoming too powerful. So they get sent to this planet to get wiped out 
and it's a it's a scheme by House Harkonnen, big fat Baron dude, and the Empire to get rid of these guys that are becoming too powerful. See, that makes sense, but none of that was clear to me. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me until about an hour in. Still didn't know by the end. There's also a lot with Paul's heritage and specifically his mum and what that means for his future, that there is an ability that is acquired. I don't understand a lot of all that stuff. But may- maybe this is like, we'll learn more about it in the other film. I'm, I'm willing to forgive it that. Although in previous weeks, how many times have I said, I don't need you to handhold me through something? Turns out sometimes I really do. I wasn't sure on the Paul's heritage and his purpose in life and Rebecca Ferguson being part of the group of witches. I didn't really explain it, but then I realised it's supposed to be a mystery and it's fine. And and that's how I took it in the moment. Leads to a uh, brilliant scene with Charlotte Rampling, by the way. I thought it was, it was full of tension. Uh, I thought her character introduction was quite powerful. Yeah, where he puts his hand in the box. That The hand in the box scene. Mm, that's that, that just made me think of... Um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, <laughs> where yeah. they uh, put their hand in the box full of creepy crawlies. And that, that, funnily enough, is one of the things that I did not foresee this film being, is there's a lot of scenes which actually play out as well as they do because they're not reliant upon this is sci-fi, this is... Okay, he's got a mystical box he's put his hand in, but there's nothing else to that. He's put his hand in a box and she's got something to his neck and it wasn't reliant on tech to bring that tension if that makes sense it doesn't cut all that out no it does make it does make sense it's a pretty straightforward torture scene and there are i was going to say there are things in this film which i've never seen before in any film so i've got to applaud it for that that's very rare these days isn't it you mentioned about characters only appearing for five minutes i assume you're talking about javier bardem and zendaya I am, but then a lesser extent, but I didn't foresee Oscar Isaac dying so early on. I think it's only about 50 minutes in, maybe. Yeah. Might be completely wrong with my memory of that. He's taken away from us pretty quick. And then, like you say, Zendaya, we don't actually see her really, apart from a combined 20 seconds of dream sequences until the end, which again, then only amounts to two minutes worth of being on film. So I was just a bit shocked and taken aback. Even Jason Momoa's not in it that much. Yeah, I agree. And Josh Brolin isn't in it that much either. But I guess it's it's a big cast. It's a big cast. It's an ensemble cast. So that you can't have everyone in it all the time. And I will say, I don't want to seem to be crushing on Jason Momoa too much, but you mentioned there's not a lot of lightheartedness. There isn't. But I would argue that he probably brings an element of that to the extent where I thought he's the only one who doesn't know what sort of film this is, but it didn't go against the tone of it. It kind of worked and added a bit of lightheartedness to it. And I loved him in it. He kicked You're absolutely ass. right. Yeah, he turned up and played himself, but no one told him to stop playing himself. And when you talk about the humanity, he brings about 80% of the humanity to the yeah. film just because he is like, way Paul Goodson, and hugging him and jumping around. And he smiles. So yeah, he actually smiles, which, not, which you don't get a lot of. And Dave Batista, I'm glad to see him in such a massive blockbuster film because we've recognized before he's a very good actor. He's not given a lot to do here other than his stock. I'm a big, beefy, bad guy sort of thing. But he does it well, and I think he's effective. He does do it well. I really like the scene where he shouts at the Baron. Like, you cut in a promo for WrestleMania 26 with John Cena. He just screams it, and it was a really good moment. You even see, don't you, some people 
in the background who flinch when he does it and you got the feeling that that wasn't for the purpose of I'm being filmed. It was a genuine reaction to what he just did. Yeah, yeah. Jumping back and forth a bit, but uh, the the escape sequence when Oscar Isaac kind of wants an inspection of the spice mining operation and they find a harvester or something, a worm is approaching and it's supposed to be a pretty routine aerial pickup, clamp onto it, take it out and it's all fine. It's not. One of the anchors is broken. They have to go down, do an emergency evacuation in their three thopters, and they escape. I was genuinely into that. I felt it in my heart, the excitement. And the reason that I really, really liked it is because it set up where everyone was really well. There was about five minutes of them just hovering over, looking through the binoculars. That's where the worm is. That's where the harvester is. This is what we're expecting to happen. It set it up perfectly. So that when the action came, you knew what was at stake. You knew where the worm was coming from. You knew what had to happen. And another thing that is testament to why that works so well is you don't know until the very end of the scene what the impact of that worm is. You don't know what damage it's going to cause. And when it happens, you are like, you still feel all the tension building up to it. But when that finally arrives, you're like, oh, wow, that would have been catastrophic and is. But yeah, no, I agree. I was right there in that moment as well. To the extent where I was almost shouting at the screen when Paul was being an idiot off in his own little world. And you don't see the worm. I think the trailer spoils the reveal of the worm because in all the other worm scenes, it's hinted Mm. at. And it's only in the final 10, 15 minutes where the worm pops up and you see it. That shot is in the trailer. That's a big reveal that's in the last 15 minutes to finally actually see the worm. And that is why I don't watch trailers. James, what are we watching next week? Halloween Kills, the follow-up to Halloween from 2018. Thank you very much for listening. If you wish to leave us any feedback, as always, you can do all this stuff. It's readily available. Go on iTunes, leave us a five-star review and rating. You can follow us on Instagram at In The Hours Podcast. Or leave any positive or negative feedback or suggestions at inthealspodcast at gmail.com. James, from now until then, have you got anything? A dune is a mound or ridge of sand or other loose sediment formed by the wind, especially on the sea coast or in a desert. Bye. Bye. Bye.